Hey, this is Daryl. Thank you for listening. Before we get to today's show, which is all about four classic teams, Guardiola's Barcelona, the Premier League winning Leicester City team, Arsenal's Invincibles, and the original Galacticos of Real Madrid from the 50s. Before we get to all that, I want to let you know about our other show. We have a whole other podcast. It's called Soccer 101. You can find it in all good podcast players. If you listen to the two most recent episodes, you will get a short and hopefully very accurate description of GAM and TAM. We answer the question, what is GAM and what is TAM? There's also an in-depth review of Diego Maradona versus England at the 1986 World Cup. I know I might be biased, but I recommend both episodes. So it's Soccer 101. Please go and give it a listen. All right, on with today's show. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who's living La Vida Lockdown. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. In that I'm going crazy while in lockdown? Yeah, sure. Why not? Are you Are you doing okay? You and I actually yeah. haven't had this conversation. I've just assumed you're doing okay. No, yeah, we're doing fine. We, yeah. we are fortunate. We have our dogs. We have a backyard. I have projects to be done. We have the show that can be recorded remotely. No, we're very fortunate. I'm very, very happy. Uh, or as happy as you can be to not have any physical human contact aside from uh, the one person with whom I always have physical human contact. There we go. There we go. <laughs> um, I've gotten used to You're saying I want to hug you. That's what I'm saying. I want to hug Daryl and I can't. And that's the only downside. We'll, we'll digitally hug every day on the Total Soccer Show. Have not that? the same, Daryl. <laughs> not the same. Have you gotten weirdly used to recording remotely? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to the extent that in in one, in one of the topics we're going to be discussing, which is the return of the Bundesliga, it did then make me, or the potential return, uh, it did make me then ponder a world in which we're back in the office, and it does seem very foreign at this point. <laughs> it would. There's a lot more room in the office than there is in my little closet that I'm recording in <laughs> right now. I know that. I, I mean, my, my recording area almost collapsed when we did our live uh, record with the Cooligans. So, yes, I think we could both do with a little more room. <laughs> that was unintentionally the highlight um, of that Twitch it's stream. What I, it's what I get for dramatically <laughs> rolling away from the microphone. It's I my own fault. Ninja's Twitch profit, profits took a hit. <laughs> yes, that. that's probably true. <laughs> so t- today's show, Taylor, we are going to be doing uh, the first the first two games from our mm. TSS Champions Champion Cup of History. I believe Is that what I it? that's what you named it. Um, <laughs> I believe today's matchups are Guardiola's Barcelona team of 2009-2011 versus Leicester City of 2015-16, the 5,000 to 1 long shots. And we're also going to do Arsenal 2004, the Invincibles versus Real Madrid 55-60, to 60, who I'm going to mm-hmm. call the original Galacticos. So that's yeah. going to be today's show. But first, there is a bit of news that um, I want to sort of catch up our listeners on. Um, the Eredivisie made a big decision. Mm-hmm. They made a big, big call. They did. Um, the Eredivisie just essentially cancelled the season, right? They just said, no champion, no promotion relegation, um, and wherever you are right now, that you go to Europe in those places. 
That's yeah, it. I thought it was. I thought it was bold of them to put all their money on that Ajax team for the 1970s to win the Champions Champion Cup of history. Uh, that's what they've said. They're they're going with our competition over their <laughs> official Eredivisie competition. We'll <laughs> see how it goes. They're going to abandon the season they had ongoing. They're all invested in our tournament, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Smart. I mean, smart move. It's a bold strategy. Or the 95 team. It could be the 95 team. One or the other. Did you? I don't know if you read the same thing as me that um, they're already in a bit of trouble with this because yes. there was a team. Oh, I've forgotten the team name. It was like Cumbia. Cumbor. Cumbor Camber. were mm. top of the Eerste Divisie, the second mm. division in the Netherlands, and they're potentially suing because now they're not going to be promoted despite being something like 11 points clear. 11 um, points clear of the third place team. That was the misleading wow. part of my Guardian article. Yes, I read oh, okay. the same thing. Yes. Okay. Um, there is another team in between that they didn't mention, but yeah. <laughs> but then there's also, I believe it was Utrecht, are currently sixth, but have a game in hand on the fifth place team, so could take mm-hmm. fifth place and qualify for Europa League. But yeah. they won't be doing that because the season's been cancelled and they won't be getting their Europa League place. So I believe FC Utrecht, former home of Juan Agadello, um, are also considering... So we all know them, obviously. Of course, they've, they added that to the club badge. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> so I think the Eredivisie and the Dutch authorities are getting a little bit nervous that there might mm-hmm. be a bunch of lawsuits. And I, I, my quick take on this is it's just proof that no matter what decision you make, someone's going to be unhappy and it's probably going to have some sort of uh, legal consequences. Yeah, I mean, because credit to the Eredivisie for trying to make the tough decision. It was, uh, I forget, correct me if you've already said this, or forgive me if you already said this, but it was a split decision, so I think the league ended up having to make the final vote. And I think they had to make a tough vote, because it, you're making the kind of clear, decisive one now, but it does then invite all this scrutiny and all of these teams who are going to be very frustrated. And we're talking about the ones that are statistically still, like the one that was three points behind, but game in hand and better goal difference. But there's even other teams that are like, well, we could have gone on a run. You don't know. Yeah. We could have gone far. There would have been teams in the playoffs that could have potentially gotten promotion. So I think there's lots of teams that are going to feel chagrined. And I think they have every right to be. And I think the Eredivisie have every right to make the decision they made. It's just a weird situation when some people are going to be upset, as you said. But it's also the league kind of doing what it needs to do to, I guess, make smart decisions. But I'm taking it as proof that maybe there's no right decision. Because whatever you Mm -hmm. decide to do, someone's going to (laughs) complain. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because because even if they if they didn't do this and they try to cram in a schedule, then you've got tons of games happening and players are going to be unsatisfied and fans are going to still be like, well, this isn't how it was meant to be. And yeah, if and there's a, a regular possible, season, it would have been fine. And there's a possible public health risk and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Mm. Um, speaking of the Bundesliga, yeah, um, is we I think we've talked about it before that they are maybe planning to come back on May the 9th. As I understand it, like their sort of plans are in place, right? The Bundesliga's got it all organized and they're thinking this is how we're going to do it. Um, there is some sort of meeting on April 30th, which is what, mm-hmm. this Thursday, um, where the, they'll either get the green light or not. It'll be sort of a government public health decision on whether it's okay for the Bundesliga to come back or not. But I want to just float that out there to our listeners because essentially keep your eyes out for the news this week. You might find out that the Bundesliga is coming back. Or not. And it sounds, it sounds like it's sort of indirect, that like it's Angela Merkel meeting with, I think, like the 18 regional governors to decide if they need to extend social distancing measure, measures yeah. or if they can reduce them a little bit. And basically, if they can reduce them, that would then allow for the Bundesliga to take place. If they don't, then it won't. That's, that's probably the right way to do it, right? It's not a Bundesliga-specific decision. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a nationwide or at least um, area-by-area decision. Mm-hmm. And then we'll see yeah. if playing some soccer fits in with that. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I think that's that's probably the way they're Me- going to do it. And then no matter what, if we've already established, people are going to be upset. Meanwhile, if you're really hungry for soccer, then the brave players of Belarus are just pretending that this thing isn't happening and they're playing yeah. away. Yes, despite players getting getting coronavirus and having to miss time and now there's reserve teams being fielded. Yeah, good stuff, Belarus.
So that, yeah, there's a lesson in how not to do it. Um, mm-hmm. I think instead, um, just create your own competition, uh, the Champions Champions Cup of History, and then you don't even have to have the players take the field because you can already sort of figure out what's going to happen. You can just imaginate the games. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here we go. The first matchup in our 32 team uh, knockout tournament. If you want to go mm-hmm. back and listen to the draw, it was on last week's uh, last week's uh, series of Total Soccer shows. I would encourage you to listen to the draw. I think it was a good. Uh, a good yeah. time. I had a good time anyway. Um, uh, can I can I say something before you get to the matchups? Yeah. Because we've just established that, yes, I, I did randomly come up with the Champions Champion Cup of History, which is the CCCH, yeah. which sounds suspiciously like the CCCP, which I believe is the way the Soviet Union referred to itself. So I'm going to say that, especially since this is from the era of, era of like the Cold War, most of these teams, it should be the CCCH trophy, since we've already got Cup in there, and I need someone to design an appropriately Soviet-looking trophy. <laughs> Well, I want to add the O to the acronym, the Champions okay. Champions Cup of History. And it's oh, the- gosh. Kakaw! <laughs> now, you, now you're one of the blues doing a chicken call. I forget which one does kakaw, but it's one of them. Exactly. Uh, all right, so our first matchup. <laughs> these, these were drawn at random. These were drawn at random. Our first matchup is mm-hmm. Guardiola's Barcelona. And oh, their boy. peak years being 2009 to 2011. Uh, they won the treble in 2009. Uh, they won the double in 2011. Not so bad. Um, versus the long shots, Leicester City, 2015 to 2016. Um, so we're going to sort of talk about why each team was so special, um, the pros and cons of each team, and then we're going to have the imaginary matchup. Would you yeah. like to start us, Taylor, with Guardiola's sure. Barcelona? Mm-hmm. They play a 3-5-2. Just kidding. No, they don't. Uh, Barcelona 2009-2011, it's the 4-3-3 that we, we know and love and have come to expect from Pep Guardiola, but a 4-3-3 with lots of experimentation there. But I want to start with Pep Guardiola himself, if you'll indulge me. Of course. I'll always indulge you. Uh, because this is Pep Guardiola, thank you, taking over, uh, having been like the, you know, the seminal player for Barcelona, like doesn't really like set the world alight, but he is a player that uh, I believe Xavi and Iniesta were literally told to model their game on when they're coming through the academy. He uh, takes over after Frank Reichard leaves, and he really does sort of go about playing the Pep Guardiola style that we've all come to expect, and he really brings in his ideals. They lose their first game 1-0, they draw their second one 1-1. In those games, Johan Cruyff is like the only one who's impressed, and then they go on to win. Win. I think they pick up 58 points from their next 20 games, and that really is the kind of start of Barcelona being this just incredible force uh, for the modern era, I should say, since they've been an incredible force and unstoppable force many times. But this iteration is the one for like the current era that it's really easy to blend a lot of teams. And I kept waiting for Luis uh, Suarez to show up, even yeah. though obviously that doesn't happen during this time period. But the amount of depth they did have is is truly impressive. Okay, before we talk about the style of play and the philosophy, mm-hmm. which is the really important thing that this team had. Of philosophy that was oh, yeah. sort of uh, embedded by Guardiola, and all the players agreed on it is the big, big thing. Um, mm-hmm. I want to give the lineup. They're essentially two lineups, but they're mostly the same. So yeah. the 2009 classic lineup is Valdez in goal, it's Alves at right back, Puyol and Pique at centre back, Eric Abidal at left back, the midfield three, which I think is the most important part of this team, Sergio Busquets, Xavi, and Andres Iniesta. Then in 2009, your front three is Messi on the right. Eto centre forward, Thierry Henry on the left. Mm-hmm. By 2011, that's the only thing that's really changed is the front three, right? And now you've got Messi as a central, like false nine type guy, and Pedro and David Villa on the wings. That's what Barcelona looked like during this period. And they were famous for, in my notes, it says absurdly high possession percentage. <laughs> I mean, 
Yep, that, that about checked out to me. This was like the start of the Total Soccer Show, right? So we were starting to watch games more seriously, and I was flabbergasted just how much these Barcelona teams had the ball. It was always like around 70% or so. It was tiki-taka, it was short passing. Yeah, and this is where I have it sort of summarized as uh, tiki-taka midfield numbers, uh, because that is the thing that drove a lot of opponents crazy at this point. So Alex Ferguson had the quote, uh, if you put three in midfield, they'll put four. If you put four, they'll put five. And that is what they would do. They have the numbers in the middle to then be able to keep that ball moving to keep Keep those those passes going to have all of your different triangles and to really uh, frustrate opponents and sort of kill the game off at the same time. Yeah, and if we're talking Ferguson quotes, I remember him mm-hmm. saying before a game against Barcelona that the thing to be scared of is that at some point, Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets, that midfield trio, will put you on the carousel. That's what he called it. And it was just those guys just moving the ball around, moving the ball around, um, mm-hmm. dizzying you and eventually opening you up. And even though we've got arguably peak Leo Messi in the attack in this team I would say this is the core of this team Xavi, Mm -hmm. Iniesta, Busquets and Barcelona's dominance really doesn't start to decline from this this peak peak period of 2009 to 2011 until Xavi moves to Qatar right it was really when this when these three were together they were they just complemented each other absolutely perfectly you had Busquets as like the pivot who could sit a little deeper and set the tempo and uh, sort of break that first line you had Xavi who could pick out passes that nobody else could see and execute them perfectly. Um, and then you had Iniesta, who was so good at short little one-twos at the top of the box, so good at like the stop-and-go mm-hmm. dribble. Um, just the three of them together were, I really think, might be the best midfield three of all time. Which is amazing, and again, why I think this team is so impressive and why we hold Pep Guardiola, we as like a soccer community hold him in such regard, is because these are all three guys who initially were all competing for the same spot when they were coming through the academy. They were going to be the number six, and it was going to be ball-winning, scrappy, but like good in possession, and Guardiola sort of found a way to make all three of them fit to really get the best out of all of them and to, to bring about their best characteristics while kind of minimizing the things that they didn't really have uh, that strongly, and then they end up being this incredible midfield uh, triumvirate that is completely dominant and completely technical and you're right that like it kind of goes away when Xavi leaves but then you have Rakitic come in and we and we're all like oh okay well that's the end of it it's gonna fall apart when Xavi leaves and then they proceed to be very very good with Rakitic they bring in other players in there as well they keep doing just fine but arguably never as good as 2009 to 2011 and that's why they're that's that's why the team not the team with Rakitic and Neymar and those Mm -hmm. guys that team's not in this bracket no this is the team in the bracket because I think Mm -hmm. it's one I I think it might be the best team of all time we'll find out we might we might be saying that a few times as we uh, i think we probably venerate various uh, magnificent Mm -hmm. teams but i think also this is the best team guardiola is ever gonna have right he built a magnificent team at bayern but it didn't have xavi and it didn't have messi who were both sort of perfectly suited to what guardiola wants to do he's built a magnificent team at manchester city but it didn't have xavi and it didn't have messi what really sticks out in my head is um someone asking him um, about kevin de bruyne they've been talking in the press conference about how great kevin de bruyne is for manchester city and how he might be the best player in the premier league and someone asked him in the press conference is he the best player in the world and guardiola said no because messi exists (laughs) <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong, but this like 2009 Messi is still, it's still Lionel Messi, don't get me wrong, but yeah. it's not Lionel Messi elevated to that next level. Like he's getting there, but it's still a Messi that is like hungry and wants to prove himself. Uh, so he's willing to play, say, right wing and let Samuel Eto'o do Samuel Eto'o things, but Samuel Eto'o himself is very hungry. Thierry Henry comes in from Arsenal, but it's almost like he leaves Arsenal because he wants to play for Barcelona because he wants to push himself to that next level. Yeah. So he's happy to play left wing again. And, and it just feels like he also got the right components at the right time with the appropriate level 
of willingness to do what he's asking of them. Here's the thing about Messi, though. I think he was there by 2011. I think he's as good. I mean, he just maintained the yeah, level. I'd agree with that. But 2011, I believe, this was on Reddit the other day because someone had posted saying it's nine years since this happened. It was Barcelona versus Real Madrid in the Champions League semi final. And there's a moment where Messi picks it up in central midfield, gives it to Busquets, and then runs at Busquets. And Busquets just sort of touches it into Messi's path. And then he yep. beats five Real Madrid players and scores. Now, I remember 2009, that Champions League final, being that moment where I was like, okay, Messi's just that good that you can stop him everywhere else and then he'll score a header on you. Yep. Like, that is that is how good he is. And yeah, by 2011, I think he has definitely reached uh, that next level, although they don't win the treble as they do in the first season. Before we move on to Leicester City, I think there's one mm-hmm. important thing to note about this Barcelona team that we all talked about. I have about. one more thing as well. Okay, we mm-hmm. all talked about this at the time, but we, uh, we I don't think we remember it as well. As well as the possession and the tiki-taka and the quick one-twos at the top of the box and Messi's dribbling and Iniesta's dribbling that could slice you open. The big, big thing about this team was that they tried to win the ball back as soon as they lost it. I remember mm-hmm. there being a lot of talk about the six-second rule, which is that if, if a Barcelona attack breaks down, that the opposition is most vulnerable and Barcelona will try and win it back within six seconds because the opposition is sort of still scrambling and all over the place. And mm-hmm. if you win it back, you're sort of gag-impressing, right? You're countering the counter and then the other team's in trouble because that, that's another huge weapon that Barcelona had in this era. Yeah, it's it's the idea, like that early idea of, of defending by not having to defend, basically. That like you put them under pressure, yes. you get the ball back, and then you're defending by having possession, essentially. Yeah. It's the exact opposite philosophy of Jose Mourinho, <laughs> uh, to some extent. What, so what, um, what was the other thing you wanted to talk about before we moved on? The other thing for me was just that like we, we talk a lot, like Ryan Bailey and I would talk a lot about Fernandinho playing center back for Man City and how that's an issue. But it really, what this kind of going back and look at these teams did is remind me that this is the thing he has always done, that Pep has always wanted to have a, a goalkeeper who could be a sweeper who could sweeper keeper who could play with the ball at their feet Victor Valdez could do that Manuel Neuer obviously could at Bayern but with this Barca team you also have uh, the 2009 Champions League final you have Yaya Torre starting as a center back 2011 you have Javier Mascherano yes. uh, you had Sergio Busquets jumping in there as well so it, it's always been a thing and that was a good reminder for me of like it's not just that he's sort of scrambling and trying to find solutions this is a thing he prefers to do and it starts here and it starts successfully because obviously two Champions Leagues in three seasons is uh, nothing to shake a stick at and I would argue if you're looking for a weakness in this Barcelona team and this was a thing that a lot of people talked about for a long time like does this team have any weakness at all because it keeps beating everybody um it's maybe that players like Mascherano weren't proper centre-backs mm-hmm. it's just that they were never regularly exposed because Barcelona just controlled the game and had the ball mm-hmm. again mostly thanks to Xavi Busquets and Iesta that there was never a chance for them to really be exposed right so then then Guardiola would value the ball-playing centre-backs um, over the more defensive centre-backs. So what made Gerard Piquet perfect, right, is that he could do a bit of both. Get you a yeah, man Get yeah. you a man who can do both? Shakira did. <laughs> she did, indeed. Uh, I have many, many other things I could say about this Barcelona team, but that would make this recording go incredibly long. So let's move in the direction of Leicester, but first let's move in the direction of today's sponsor. It's the Black Tux, hey, Daryl Grove. Have you heard back. of the Black Tux? Are you familiar with them? I have. I've been listening to the Total Soccer Show. Oh, okay. Uh, and I've go. heard that the Black Tux is mm-hmm. the way you can use easy, an easy online ordering process to absolutely look your best because they'll bring a super or tuxedo straight to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they established the Black Tux, uh, the two gentlemen who founded it, because they did not enjoy the conventional uh, way of getting a suit or tuxedo for an event, be it a rental or a purchase. Uh, they noted uh, they felt weird. Uh, one of the one-star reviews they uh, they cite as a reason for founding it was, we felt weird buying a suit from somebody who was so unhappy, we were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day. And I do get that. Because you don't want like some like sad, angry, bitter person being like, I guess that looks fine. Good luck at your wedding. That's not a good vibe. It's you don't well want to go known. with that. It's well known that fabric absorbs frustration. 
I mean, I kind of believe it. Science. Does. You don't know. That's science. <laughs> but that's why you don't have any of that sheet fabric that uh, absorbs uh, emotions that you don't want. Instead, the Black Tux, uh, Daryl, what do they use? What kind of materials are we talking here? They use 100% merino wool on their suiting, mm-hmm. 100% cotton for their shirting, and real leather for their shoes. They do indeed, which means you're getting uh, the highest quality, the best possible products, and you're getting them without having to utilize a tape measure, which is always nice. They have the uh, the kind of fitting guide where you don't yes. have to measure anything. You can just kind of go through, click some buttons, give some information, and you are good to go. You need to know how tall you are and how much you weigh, but you really should know that anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you you probably shouldn't lie about that one either. Just no. be honest with the weight, so otherwise you get, you yeah. won't get an ill-fitting suit for uh, the day of. I can I can confidently say I am five foot eleven and eleven twelfths, um, and one hundred and eighty pounds. <laughs> And I am also a height and weight. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, you can order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code SOCCER. That's theblacktux.com, code SOCCER for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear mm-hmm. for the moment. Taylor, before we move on, mm-hmm. do you know about our friend Kenny? Uh, what about our Have friend Kenny? Have you been on Facebook today? No. Our friend Kenny, we found out, secretly got married in November 2017. Did he? Yep. Did you know that already? I think I knew that, yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that, so I only found out today. How about uh, At least I knew he was married. Uh, from I went to his house for New Year's. It was a Peaky Blinders party. Oh, maybe this uh, was I, like for uh, people who don't know him quite as well, because you know him better than I do. Ah, uh, that could be. That yeah. could be. So Although they, maybe, maybe I didn't know that. They finally announced that they were married. I just, I didn't know. I thought they were still planning to get married in the future. Maybe it was the uh, the romance and the mystery of coronavirus that finally made them uh, make it official. <laughs> that must be it. That must be it. Uh, must be it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Barcelona's mm-hmm. opponent, Barcelona 2009-2011, their opponent is Leicester City. Most people will remember this team, but here's the potted history just in case people don't know. Please. They were, they were 5,000 to 1 to win the mm. Premier League at the start of the Premier League in August 2015. By the end of it, by May 2016, they were sitting 10 points clear on top of the table, Leicester City won the Premier League when nobody thought it was possible, right? Even like when it got to like January, February, March, we were all still thinking, all right, they've done really well, but someone else is going to win this Premier League. I honestly had to remind myself that we kept thinking that when I was preparing for this clash, because it was an element of like, yeah, I mean, it's Leicester and they won, but still, it's this Barcelona team. And this is exactly what teams did in that season. Yes. And that's exactly how they won. That's true, right? So that's why that's why this makes this an interesting matchup. I'm interested mm-hmm. in talking about how they match up tactically, but yep. first we've got to like explain this Leicester team. We did a whole sure. show about this. I know you. I think you went back and listened to that show we did about this. I tried to find it and couldn't and gave up and just did some of my own reading instead. <laughs> that was good enough, good enough. Yeah. Um, all right, mm-hmm. so it's coached by Claudio Ranieri. That's mm-hmm. the important thing. Um, I would say he played an Arrigo Saki-ish, tight, compact 4-4-2. Where if, I don't know if you know this, but the, the big Arrigo Saki rule was there should be only 25 yards between the strikers and the defenders, which is not very far, right? So that means no, you, it's not. <laughs> you squeeze all the space between the yeah. lines and you don't give teams room to play in midfield. That's what makes them a really interesting opponent for Barcelona. You also, even though you have this tight 4-4-2, you don't sit super deep, right? You try and have it around midfield. Your midfielder should be around midfield. You're not sitting at the top of your own box, parking the bus and all that. Mm. Then when you win the ball back and you're Leicester, you basically put Jamie Vardy in behind. That's the goal. Win the ball back, get it to Jamie Vardy. He will score on the counter. It's a little more complicated than that, but that is the absolute basics of this Leicester City team. 
Yeah, there was a video uh, Michael Cox did uh, of Zonal Marking Fame when he was kind of highlighting how they played, and it really was. It was like, I think it was like Huth wins the ball, plays it to Conte, Conte plays it to Drinkwater, Drinkwater plays it to Mares, Mares plays it long to Vardy, Vardy scores. And it's like, yeah, that feels about right. Yeah, That feels about right. That does feel about right. Can I give you the quick lineup? Um, Please. Okay, it's Kasper Schmeichel in goal. Mm-hmm. The centre-backs are Wes Morgan and Robert Huth. Yep. You've got Danny Simpson and Christian Fuchs at right and left back. <laughs> yeah. Central midfield is N'Golo Conte. And uh-huh. Danny Drinkwater. Mm-hmm. Left wing is Mark Albrighton. Right wing Chelsea is... legends, the both of them. <laughs> right wing is Riyad Mahrez. And mm. your strikers are always Vardy. And then it's either Okazaki or Uyoa is his yep. strike partner. And their job really was flick it on for Jamie Vardy. Yep. <laughs> and and they did that job pretty successfully, pretty consistently this yeah. season. I mean, it really does come down to uh, defense does defense things. Casper uh, Schmeichel is a good goalkeeper. And then uh, Conte, Mares, Vardy. Uh, those three yep. coming together. That's basically the definition of that title. And it's, it is all about those quick balls forward, right? I looked at some yeah. statistics. These are from halfway through the season. But at one point, they had less than 50% possession per game. And they mm-hmm. had the lowest pass completion percentage yep. in the league. Because if it just goes out wide to Mark Albrighton, and his job is just, you know, bend a ball in behind and Vardy's going to try and run onto it, that's not going to work every time. But it works enough times for Vardy to mm-hmm. score once or twice, and you're winning that game. Right, and and it's and it's why I actually think this Leicester team. Uh, I don't want to quite get to the uh, what happens when they play each other conversation yet, but I do think this ended up being a more complex matchup than I thought it would be yes. because this is a Leicester team that, as you said, can kind of sit with those two backs of four, not necessarily sit deep, but sit off a little bit. They invite that pressure. They basically frustrate you, but when you try to play through the middle and invite those crosses from wide because they back Huth and Morgan to win them and be physical in the air yeah. and cause problems. Because I and wouldn't, then they back themselves I, to bre- break. I wouldn't trust Huth and Morgan to chase backwards for one nah. thing. Yeah. Nah. So there's no, that. I wouldn't but, trust them in a foot race. But essentially, like, if you're talking about sort of trying to stifle an opponent that wants to play possession soccer through the middle and doesn't want to be forced into crossing out wide, but is susceptible to maybe getting a little bit of pace on the counterattack, that is this Barcelona team to some extent. Yep. And so I do think that it's a pretty interesting matchup. Uh, but before we get into that, I, I think we should probably talk a, a bit more about some of the individuals here and yeah. how they all kind of fit together. All right, we've mentioned N'Golo Conte mm-hmm. a couple of times. This was his first season in England. As soon yeah. as Leicester had won the league, he moved to Chelsea, right? Yep. But he was magnificent this season. He, I think he led the league in tackles, um, recoveries, interceptions, every sort of defensive stat. He was re- he was really really up there. And it also that that wasn't just a number on a spreadsheet, right? It really passed the eye test. There was the, every time the ball went into that crowded midfield, Angola Conte came out with the ball. And yeah. going back and watching some highlights, what I didn't properly remember from the time is it's not as if he then just like gave it to someone better, like say Makaleli did at Real Madrid. And Golo Conte would often drive forward himself and make something happen, right? It would be him winning the ball and then like driving forward and then he'd slip Riyad Mahrez in out wide or something like that. So Conte mm-hmm. really did contribute to the attack. Do you remember the story of how they found him? No. Because it's, it, it's, it's they, the abbreviated did look, version. Did they look down? Yeah, that was it. That was it. He was there the whole time. Uh, no, it was basically that they were like comparing. They knew they needed a central midfielder and they were looking at like possibilities. And it was a lot of people who were out of their price range. And they basically did this very comprehensive statistical analysis of what the strengths and weaknesses were. And the way I think of it is like almost a FIFA video game of like, here's their rankings for acceleration. Here's their rankings for ball control. And he just kept being in the top three. And they're like, but but everybody else on this list is like 30 million pounds. And he is decidedly not 30 Five million. million. Five million. Is Let's roll that dice. And they roll the dice and here we are wow i mean i think he's the player that won them the premier league 
I agree. I mean, maybe it's, it's you, why... you could argue without Vardy, without Mares, without Conte. Like, you could maybe remove any one of those three yeah. and this Premier League win doesn't happen. But all three of them were there, at least for this season. If you go back and read, like, the post-season reviews of, like, who's going to stay and who's going to go, it was always, like, Conte might go and, like, Arsenal are interested, but he's probably going to stick around. It's more so Mares and Vardy were the two that everybody seemed to think was going. Uh, Vardy himself, uh, for a brief moment of time, thought he was going. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the Conte... Being the one that ended up leaving in retrospect, not that surprising <laughs> given how good he has been for Chelsea and for France, obviously. Anything else you want to talk about with this Leicester team? Uh, just that Jamie Vardy, I'm excited to see Jamie Vardy go up against that Barcelona defense because I also feel like he's got enough of the, uh, the housery, is the <laughs> way I'm going to phrase that one, that yep. you might need to sort of frustrate Barcelona and get them to surround that referee as they are wont to do. Let's talk about Vardy's game for a second, though. I sure. rem- one of the things I remember. Um, and I think you sort of incorporated this into your game in our amateur league because you loved it uh-huh. so much, is Vardy would drift to the wing to yep. start his diagonal run, basically, yep. right? So you could get a running yeah. start on running in behind. He is the forward. I mean, I don't know if this is a Jamie Vardy thing or if it was just like like time periods colliding perfectly, but he was the first striker I remember really watching and noticing how he would move away from the ball to then get like check back to and be open or how he would just deliberately move away to open up space. Yeah. But a lot of his movement was very specific but it was very like decided upon that as soon as he like in the in the tenth of a second when he realized like I need to make this run or I need to kind of create space he would do that and it was just sort of very quick decisions but generally the right decision and the way he sort of I guess like backed his gut to get the right results was was very impressive so I appreciate that and basically what you're saying is I'm Jamie Vardy I'm saying you copied a Jamie Vardy thing (laughs) (laughs) so two two extra things about Vardy I'm Jamie Vardy (laughs) I do think those movements his, his teammates were on the same page, right? Yep. They knew where those movements were going, and I think that's why it was so successful. They knew that Vardy would make this quite weird, unorthodox, like, check back, but then diagonally run in behind type, like, bent run. Um, mm-hmm. And if Mark, Mark Albrighton knows you're doing that, it's quite easy for him to collect the ball on the left wing and play a weird right-footed through ball for, for Vardy to run onto, right? That takes the opposition by surprise, but Leicester knew it was happening the whole time. Yeah. And do you remember his, uh, it, it, so it's, it's with the defense, it's with the midfielders, but it's even with Casper Schmeichel. Do you remember his, his corner kick defense position? Yes. He would start, he would start like on the right hand touchline at midfield, basically, yep. right? Yep. And then he would do the run central along midfield until that ball was booted and he knew he was onside and then take off running. And that is a hallmark of, of Leicester in this season. They had very specific patterns of play that they knew to kind of go to when the situation was on. The thing I quite liked about them as well is uh, Simpson and Fuchs, the fullbacks, don't get a lot of credit. They weren't no. really like Danny Alves types, right? They wouldn't join the attack mm-hmm. and be whipping cross- loads and loads of crosses in. And I think that kind of helped is that they always, always had like a solid defensive four. They didn't have any of any fullbacks who were more attackers than defenders and weren't contributing much defensively. So with that in mind, then, if we look at the matchup itself, yeah. do you think that's going to be a vulnerability for Leicester? I think a, vo- a vulnerability as in because the fullbacks go- don't get forward. Yeah. As in, as in, do you think, like, basically the way I see this game going is them being pinned back, maybe initially the way they want to be, and then slowly maybe less the way they want to be, and more so because Barcelona are doing Barcelona tiki-taka things, and they're unable to alleviate pressure the way they would maybe like to alleviate pressure. Yeah, I, th- I think that's how this game goes, is that Barcelona sort of slowly march Leicester back until Leicester are pinned at the top of their own box, and then they do find a way through. I think... I think even as as great at Leicester are as squeezing space, 
Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets are so great at opening up space that they would eventually find a way and they might even just enjoy the challenge of doing it in a smaller and smaller space, right? It's like Leicester yeah. are just presenting them with a tough rondo, but they've rondoed their whole lives. So eventually, Xavi and Iniesta will be passing around N'Golo Kante. Yeah, and then, like, to your point about Messi kind of reaching that level in 2011, that if we're kind of blending this team into one, Messi in the 2011 iteration is probably also going to go at some defenders, and I have a feeling that maybe he exploits some of the lack of pace of, say, Wesley Morgan and finds a way around or finds a way in behind. Yeah, I think that's true. Even if Leicester are at the top of their own box, Messi's so good at, um, especially, say, if Danny Alves joins the attack, him and Alves had that telepathic link-up, right? There'd definitely be a Messi, Messi dribbles, like someone's drawn in, he lays it off to Alves but then Messi darts in behind and Alves plays mm-hmm. him through he's getting in behind that defence if they're at the top of their own box if Le- even if Leicester are where they want to be right at the top of the box I could see Xavi managing to find just enough space to pick out a pass for Messi to run behind Morgan and Huth with acres of space to run into like so, not regularly but at some yeah. point so Leicester like had a string of one nil results that obviously helped them uh, get that title because one nil is three points, still three points. Yeah, this does feel like like if we were going like full uh, FA Cup style, this does feel like it could be uh, a game that went to a replay. Although since it's Barcelona at home, that might be harder. If Leicester had the better draw, maybe we're drawn at home. I could see this going to replay and Barcelona Barcelona win in the second leg at the Camp Nou. Uh, but if we're going straight up Barcelona at home, Leicester going on the road, I think it's it's tighter than some people might expect. And I think Leicester yeah. still caused some problems. But maybe they get a goal in there. Maybe they're able to, to snake one. But I, I think I, Barcelona going with the full tiki-taka, we're never going to give you the ball, might also limit the effectiveness of that counterattack a little bit. Yeah, here's how I see it. I see Leicester score. Leicester will score in this game, right? Mm-hmm. At some point, like a move will break down. Conte will give it to Mares. Mares will slip it in behind. And, you know, Barcelona have committed both fullbacks forward. And it's just Puyol and Piquet up against Jamie Vardy. And he's faster than both of them. It doesn't matter how much of a warrior Puyol is. If Vardy's faster than him, he is getting away from him. Um, Vardy's getting in behind and probably scoring on Victor Valdez at some point. But in the rest of the game, they're like, often maybe Leicester will win the ball back, but Barcelona will win it back straight away right? Like Danny Drinkwater receiving the ball, suddenly he's going to be swarmed and he's going to be coughing up the ball again. Um, Or Barcelona will just slowly, slowly work the angles and open it up. This is like 75% Barcelona possession, 25% Leicester possession. I think this ends like 3-1 to Barcelona. A really tough effort from Leicester, but 3-1 to Barcelona. Do you really think they're swarming though? Because like Xavi, Iniesta, Thierry Henry, I I don't think of them as like swarming as much. They do when there's the vulnerability, right? When the Mm -hmm. ball is, when they've just lost possession and there's a chance to win it right now, that's when they do it. That's when they go for it. Yeah. All right. All right. I was I was prepared for this to be a a tougher contest, but you're saying three one. Yeah, three one, and that's mostly because like maybe Leicester loosen up a bit in the last fifteen minutes because they're chasing mm. it. But yeah, three one. All right, so yeah, like two one, then they go like it's what uh, United did, I think, in two thousand nine. Is they went like four two four to try to make something happen and push numbers forward, but that obviously does not. Uh, correct the imbalance in the middle. Yeah. And I could see, yeah, Leicester get over overcommitted. Maybe it's one to one. Then it's two one early in the second half, and it finishes three one when they overcommit and get beat on the counter or something like that. Yep. I'll say this though: I would love to see it because that tight, compact Leicester shape. I'd love to see Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, uh, sorry, and Busquets trying to play their way through in that tight space. I wish there was a way. I would love to see that, and I would really love to see it in terms of like I wish there was a way to put these two teams. 
from like their respective football managers or something against each other and see what actually happens. That would be really fascinating, but requires a level of dedication to a football manager that I do not have, nor do I maybe want to have. I would rather invent time travel and make this game happen for real. <laughs> All right, so you're going to focus on that. You're going to focus on that. Yeah, I'll okay. work on that. You work on the other thing. I'm good. I'm good on that. <laughs> Uh, do you feel like we've done this matchup justice? I think there were going to be some people who take offense because this is basically what every Premier League team did was sort of right off Leicester City, think they wouldn't be able to do anything, and then they ended up winning the title. But I think maybe if they drawn, maybe if they had drawn that like next generation Barcelona team that still had the imprint of Pep Guardiola but weren't quite on that level, maybe that's where, where well, Leicester are able to get it done. But against this team, this very hungry, very young, very motivated Barcelona team, I think they uh, they dropped some points on this. Because here's the thing: there wasn't a team in the 2015-16 Premier League that was as good as Guardiola's right. Barcelona, right? So no. this Leicester team, I'm, I don't want to take anything away from that title win. It was magnificent. It was thrilling. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Um, I loved watching it. Uh, but they never ever faced a team as this Barcelona team because very few yeah. teams are as good as this Barcelona team. And very in, few teams win the treble. And yeah. in the end, you're talking about like Dani Alves and Leo Messi going up against. Christian Fuchs and Mark Albrighton on one mm-hmm. flank. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So eventually, quality will out and Barcelona win this game, even though I think Leicester give them a really good run for their money by closing up all the space and offering a, like a, a dangerous counter-attacking threat. Just not quite enough. All right, so Leicester City, the first victim of the CCCO, if you want to go O, uh, H uh, trophy. Uh, So uh, congratulations to Barcelona. We should reiterate at this point that we're not doing a bracket, that Barcelona threw to the next round, but now they have to await the draw draw uh, once we get down to 16 teams about seven years from now. All right, all that uh, history has made me thirsty, though, Taylor. Okay. <laughs> today's show, before we move on to the second game, mm-hmm. today's show is sponsored by Hydrant. Hydrant creates flavoured electrolyte packets that you can mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. A uh, thing you might not like to know, Taylor, is that each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, Salt, potassium, sugar, fat. No. No? Sodium, potassium, <laughs> magnesium, and zinc. Those are what help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated uh-huh. all day. Don't pour them on your plants. Plants don't need electrolytes. <laughs> humans do. Humans do need electrolytes. Uh, what humans don't need to be is dehydrated. Uh, uh, Hydrant would like us to know that 75% of people are walking around everyday life chronically dehydrated, which sounds about right to me because I will definitely, especially when I've got a lot of research to do as we have for this show, I will definitely reach for the coffee and the Coca-Cola over maybe the uh, all-giving precious life water. I mean, uh, So I, I should maybe uh, like jazz it up a little bit with some Hydrant packs and uh, get myself more interested in the water. And it's backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford what? scientists to provide perfect no balanced, efficient hydration, and there's no synthetic colors or artificial sweetness. The formula is vegan. I guess some people would be very happy about that. And you can choose between three different flavors or a variety packet. It starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply, and you can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off, saving you even more, uh, 25% off your first order, you can go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code SOCCER at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, and the code is SOCCER for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code SOCCER. And of course, as we always say, hail Hydrant. Hail Hydrant, indeed. Thank you very much to Hydrant slash Hydra for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, we are done with our first matchup. Let's move to our second. This one, I'm a bit more 
uh, uncertain of. I'm excited to see how it plays out because yeah. I think in my notes I had uh, that I'm not sure if Arsenal w- win this game. Like I'm not sure if they even make it out of this get- matchup. And yet I simultaneously think there's a chance that the Invincibles team wins the entire competition. So here's the thing. Barcelona-Leicester, they're five mm-hmm. years apart, right? Mm-hmm. Arsenal 2004... The Invincibles, the team that went an entire Premier League season unbeaten and obviously uh, won the Premier League, versus Real Madrid 55-60. to 60. They're about 50 years apart. We are talking mm-hmm. about massively two very, very different eras in football. That's going to make this hard. It's not going to stop us doing it. It's not. And, and I think we established earlier, but to reiterate, like we are sort of removing some of those obstacles of like we're going to assume that this 1950s Madrid team, when they come to our time timeline, when they time travel, that they have some time to adjust and do some more like yeah. you know modern physical workouts and stuff like that. We're not going with like, oh, this team would be better because, you know, it's it's the modern era when there's more time to play soccer. Yeah, so Fer- they're going to win automatically. Ferenc Pushkas won't spend the whole game thinking, how do iPhones work? <laughs> I mean... I mean, I'd like to think that maybe he would. Maybe that's a tactic. <laughs> we don't know. I do have the one the, rule, though. The secret would be to tell him, nobody knows, Ferenc. We just use them. <laughs> um, my one rule for this game, though, Daryl, and if you refuse, I don't know, we're going to be at an impasse here, is that the Madrid players do have to be in black and white. That is like a Pleasantville <laughs> style. They're black and white, uh, even though they play in all white. So that helps with that. But yes, there will be no yeah. color to this team. So they'll just be gray faces, basically. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, should we start with Arsenal? Um, let's mm-hmm. start with this Arsenal team. I think um, in the document we called it Arsenal 2004 because that mm-hmm. was the Invincible season. But this also is a team that had a good run of. They also won the Premier League in 2002, I think. Yeah. And they did the FA Cup double that season. And they won the FA Cup in the season in between. But 2004 is the crowning glory because yeah. 38 Premier League games, 126, lost zero, unbeaten mm-hmm. in the 2003 2004 Premier League season. And 26 goals against, which is a number that I completely overlooked at the time yep. and still did until earlier this morning. That is not bad, Daryl. That is not bad, bad at all. It's not bad at all. It's less than a goal a game, obviously, the, the mm-hmm. average. Also, this team, a genuine pleasure to watch. I remember watching this team. I wasn't like doing any analysis or anything like that. I was a, a casual watcher. But I remember every time Arsenal were on TV, I was sort of like, all right, yeah, give me some Bergkamp, some Henri, some Perez, some Youngberg, some Patrick Vieira winning battles in midfield. This was a thrilling, thrilling team. See, it's interesting because at this time, in this time period, I, I, I mean, I am a Man United fan, but like fandom was like number one for me. Like I was watching these games because I was a Man United fan, and so I didn't see as Ar- Arsenal as anything but like an opponent, and therefore yeah. I just did not like them. And watching them again, I, I now fully understand why this team holds such significance for so many people. And yep. it's not just because they were unbeaten; it's because of sort of their blend of two different styles they really like sort of have one foot on 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 two different eras and i think that also makes them incredibly appealing to a lot of people all right so it's obviously an arsene wenger team that should go without Mm -hmm. saying because most arsenal teams have been arsene wenger teams for the past 20 Uh 30 years um but i'd love to hear more about this this blend of styles taylor please please inform me I have them. Uh, I have a, a like nickname phrase for them. But you watch them play. I went back and watched their four two win over Liverpool, in which they go down, they equalize, they go down, then they win four two. And what stood out to me is like number one. I think it's because of the baggy shorts and the long white socks. They all look like very gazelle like. They all like have very fast moving legs, but they all seem very flexible. And they reminded me of ballet dancers. That they're all very lean. They're all very muscular, but they're all quick and very well balanced. And so I thought of it, I thought of the, this analogy essentially. It's like if you showed up to a street fight and you saw a bunch of ballerinas like warming up and you're like, "Oh, we're going to win this one." And then the ballerinas all pulled out chainsaws and you're like, "Oh, they're psychos. This is a problem." <laughs> and that is what this team was to me. It's like 
they have this technical ability and this ability to play beautiful soccer. And simultaneously, if you want to get into a scrap, they will get into a scrap. Yes. And they have that sort of like 90s Arsenal identity of being a bit physical. They'll kind of go at you. They're going to knock you around a little bit. But then you have the more modern idea of Arsenal as this very free-flowing, attacking, lovely passing, lovely interchanging. You never know who, like who's going to pop up and score, but you can trust that somebody will idea. And those two identities, I think, are very much important in how this team was so successful. Okay, I want to give the quick lineup. Um, it's Please. either a four-four-two or a four-four-one-one. It just depends what you think Dennis Bergkamp is doing. But in mm-hmm. goal, it's Jens Lehmann in two thousand four, yeah, and the most regular lineup was Lauren at right back, Colo Torre and Sol Campbell are your centre backs, and Ashley Cole at left back. Every single one of those guys could play a bit, and Sol Campbell could definitely mm-hmm. defend a bit. Um, oh, yeah. You sent your defensive central midfield pair is Gilberto, who's like a proper defensive midfielder, and Patrick Vieira, who was like a defensive midfielder who could also go box to box, which I think is the yeah. best way of describing him. Out wide, you've got Freddie Youngberg on the right, Roberto Perez on the left, and then your front two is a free-roaming Dennis Bergkamp. He's just finding space, looking for passes, fooling people with bizarre touches, creating chances all over the place. And you've got Thierry Henry running in behind, uh, mm. beating goalkeepers like, like, it's, like, it's no, like it's easy. Like it's the easiest thing in the world to do a left foot, side foot into the far corner. Yeah. And, and that was a, a major point that I wanted to emphasize here is Thierry Henry in his prime is just like another level. Yes. He really is one of the best players to uh, play in the Premier League, certainly. Uh, and, and going back and watching him from this era of Arsenal, like it's worth remembering that like he goes and plays left wing for Barcelona because that's what he was playing coming into this Barcelona team. And then Wenger like shifts him to a striker. It doesn't work at first. Then he finds his form. And then you see him just kind of tear that league apart. And he becomes that striker that I remember back then just being terrified of. Of like, doesn't matter who else is out there. If Thierry Henry is on the field, I'm nervous. And so I want to talk about um, how the attack worked because it's sure. one of the most fascinating things to me. Um, I remember when you were picking, say, a fantasy football team around this era, you always wanted Pires and Jungberg because they were listed as midfielders, but they scored a bunch of goals mm-hmm. and the goals from midfield were worth a lot of points. Um, and I think it's really important because that was part of the threat, right? Pires and Jungberg yeah. were not traditional wingers. They weren't, their job, they weren't Mark Overmars, right? Which is like the more late 90s Arsenal where the job was to get to the end line and get crosses in. It was more that Pires and Jungberg would come in diagonally, make diagonal yep. runs and end up being like extra strikers. And actually, I didn't look how many goals they each got this season, but I know it was a lot. It was plenty, yeah. plenty goals for wingers. And then what you end up with is... 13 maybe for Perez? I could be wrong. That That's sounds completely right. completely off the top of my head. That sounds uh, right. I might be wrong. But imagine that. this. It's like, so you've got Dennis Bergkamp, say, say he's placed uh, halfway between midfield and the penalty box. He's like pulling strings from there. And then ahead of him, you've got Thierry Henry making runs in behind. And you've got Perez and Jungberg coming at you each, each from wide at an angle. You might have Patrick Vieira bursting in there late. You might have mm-hmm. Ashley Cole and Lauren overlapping, ready to, ready to provide some width. This is a terrifying thing that you are suddenly facing, but it all fits together perfectly it's kind mm-hmm. of like clockwork right i really yeah. i really what i love about this team is how every piece complements every other piece um even going back to like the gilberto sorry gilberto mm-hmm. vieira partnership if vieira was the sole defensive midfielder he'd be reduced in some way right because mm-hmm. he'd only be doing a bit of defending but because gilberto is staying home doing the defensive job vieira can destroy and vieira can attack and vieira can absolutely dominate a game in that way when he's got someone staying home like you know like making things are secure behind him 
Yeah, and, and you you have a deep team, obviously. It's not just these 11, but it is these 11 that, to your point, they do kind of know how to seamlessly play off one another and how to combine really well and how to kind of interchange positions when the situation requires. But then yeah. so, too, do the substitutes when they come on. So it, 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 was, it was a very, like, deep squad, but then it relied on its kind of core performers to yeah. uh, get the results they did. So imagine you're like, oh, well, Bergkamp is our creative hub, and, mm-hmm. like, if he's injured, then who do we bring in? Only Nuanko Kanu. You can get yeah, Kanu right? to just come off the bench and do do some like incredible ball control and terrify everybody. Yeah. And you're like, oh, our pacey Frenchman running in behind. Um, he's he's picked up a hamstring strain on international duty. Who have we got? Oh, Sylvain Viltord. Yeah. yeah, another pacey Frenchman. Another pacey Frenchman, Frenchman running in behind. A baby yeah. says Fabregas. A baby says Fabregas. Yeah, there. He's baby in there. says Fabregas was yeah, yeah was around this team. So there's mm-hmm. there's all sorts of pieces fitting together here. It's a really well constructed team from Arsene Wenger. It is. And I want to focus on Arsene Wenger. Uh, that's the final thing I wanted to make sure we hit upon before we move on is I know we're sort of we're going to have this uh, Madrid team from the 50s exist in the modern era. But I do think you have to give at least a tiny bit of edge to Arsenal uh, or at least like 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 credit to them because of what Wenger did in terms of changing that team a little bit and changing the mentality. He takes over in 96. I think by this time period, I've seen it written that he's like the direct rival to Sir Alex Ferguson, which is a weird thing to think about given the way things ended with, with Wenger. But at the time, he is the one who's going to challenge United, and he is the one who's putting together results. But it's because he brings in new ideas. The diet is the one that everybody cites. Uh, I think the quote from David Goldblatt was it went from uh, bacon, beer, and eggs to pasta, or to chicken, water, and salad, which I think is probably a good trade-off. But then a lot of the sort of the ability to get the most out of players who people didn't expect. Like, it became a thing that we kind of made fun of, like, Wenger for later on, of, like, trying to sign another 19-year-old French person to come in and replace their proven striker. But he did it a lot, and he did it really successfully. He did it with Lillian Saram, he did it with Thierry Henry for Arsenal, and he did it with lots of other players. So I think Arsene Wenger's sort of ability and intelligence and ability to be flexible uh, is a, a major part of this team and will be a major part when we contrast them with, let's say, Real Madrid. I think Lauren's a good example because Lauren mm-hmm. was uh, a midfielder who went and played right back for Wenger, right. but became yeah. this really important piece at right back because he had loads of attacking skills that could really contribute going forward. So Lauren's one good example. Um, one thing that you mentioned, though, is the nutrition. Like mm-hmm. We can talk about the difference in eras. Arsenal was sort of ahead of other teams within their own era. Yeah. That's the important thing about this team. I think they were, because of what Wenger had brought in, they were slightly ahead of a lot of Premier League teams who hadn't quite caught up in terms of nutrition. Which I'm fascinated by because like, I think Tony Adams was still in there. I think Lee Dixon was still in there. Like, there was definitely a lot of people who probably did not love the yeah. like, no more drinks the day of or drinks in the locker room or smoking or anything like that. I think that. by and- 2004, those two aren't around. But yeah. yes, especially in the early Wenger days. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Tony Adams famously liked to drink and Paul Merson famously yeah. liked to drink. But apparently it was like like Wenger kind of got a lot of pushback early on and dealt with it and sort of like like blended his approach a little bit or heard the players out. It wasn't just like, no, you do it my way or else. And I, evidently that turned a lot of respect around and got a lot of people on board. So even then it feels like he was yeah. flexible enough to sort of blend what he wanted to do with the culture that already existed at the club and found a way to make it work. So I'd argue that this 2004 team is the culmination mm. of that sort of change in nutritional approach and style of play from Arsene Wenger. This is his masterpiece, right? Yeah. All right. So let's talk about another series of masterpieces, shall we? Okay. Real Madrid, 1955 to 1960. They win the first five European Cups. If you're not familiar, the European Cup is the Champions League before it Mm -hmm. was rebranded. It started in the mid-50s. Real Madrid won the first five. 
Mm-hmm. I have them as they're as good as the sum of their parts, but just not the manager. That's basically how I have this team described. It's really interesting, right? You know how often mm-hmm. we talk about how Real Madrid um, have been disrespectful to coaches, just firing them mm-hmm. even when it looks like things are going really well? It seems like this goes all the way back to this culture of the 50s where the coach wasn't that important. Getting loads of star players was the most important thing and that everything would work itself out from there. I I didn't realize that the whole Galactico policy, which I'm sure we'll talk about on another show, Perez' obsession with getting all the star players, the big names, Mm -hmm. the Galacticos, it goes back to this, right? Because this 50s team is the original Galacticos team with Ferenc Puskas, Alfredo Di Stefano. Um, the, the biggest example I'll give you is Raymond Copa, the French mm-hmm. uh, winger. They played, I think it was, is it Nîmes um, in the first, the first European Cup? And when Copa like, played really well, even though Real Madrid won, they went and signed Copa. <laughs> yep. that, was the, that was the Galactico policy. Yeah. So, yes. But I, th- I think the thing that uh, I would point out, you mentioned like uh, Florentino Perez and how we all know that, that that was kind of a policy of his. I think in this case, it is Santiago Bernabeu, the, the current namesake of their stadium. But by all accounts, he is the sort of old school patron who is just like, nope, it needs to be this way. So it's going to be this way. The biggest uh, example there would be French Pushkash, who I did not realize was not a popular uh, signing when he came in. Did you read about this? No, I didn't. What? So what, why was he not a popular signing? So basically, uh, he's playing for uh, Hungary, obviously the Hungarian national team. They go and play a series of friendlies in Spain in, I believe, 1956, and a lot of the players just refused to leave. They didn't want to go back to Hungary. They didn't like the situation there, the uh, communist regime there. So he stays in Spain. He's banned for a year by FIFA as a result, but when he's eligible to play again, it's been a year. He's way overweight. Uh, his then-manager did not love that he was, I think, 15 kilograms overweight. He made him lose that those pounds, but the reason why he was brought in anyway, the board voted against it, is because Bernabeu said like no this is happening like he's coming in he's going to be our forward i i don't care what you say it's going to happen and it works out really really well obviously but it is that sort of history of i don't care what the board says we're doing what i want to do because i want this big name in there to make things happen and here's the weird thing i would argue i would always argue that's the wrong thing right the coaches Mm -hmm. should be have the decision to build the team yeah. But Bernabeu was right. <laughs> Ferenc Puskas was. was a key part of uh, of Real Madrid winning all these European Cups. And once again, 56, 57, 58, 59, 60. Five mm-hmm. European Cups in a row won by Real Madrid. Further evidence, though, uh, Puskas doesn't start that 59 final and the uh, Carnelia, the manager, is sacked as a result. Um, Even though they win, that's why he gets oh. fired. <laughs> so why did this team work? Yeah. I think we should get into why this team works. Um, sure. And I'm going to start with the formation. It mm-hmm. is... A du- the old-fashioned WM, essentially. Mm-hmm. Or if you want to give it um, a more modern interpretation, you could sort of call it a 3-2-5, right? Yep. And it's the front five that's really important. Now, it changes, obviously, over the course of five different seasons that we're talking about, the front five changes a lot, right? But the, uh, the sort of classic version of it that I saw was Alfredo Di Stefano, who I want to talk mm-hmm. about and I'm sure you want to talk about, as the mm-hmm. very central center forward. The blonde <laughs> um, arrow. The blonde arrow. The yes, wingers, the, the two, my favorite two wingers from what I looked at, were the aforementioned uh, Raymond Copa on the right, mm-hmm. who came from Reem, by the way, not Neem, Reem. I just, I just double-checked myself. Gento on the left, who is this incredibly fast Spanish winger who just burn you for pace. And then the sort of two, they used to be called inside forwards. So they're almost like yep. number 10 surrounding the center forward. Ferenc Puskas on one side of Di Stefano and uh, Real, who as a player I'm not mm-hmm. that familiar with, uh, but seemed to be really important because he seemed to be a, a common thread throughout these teams. And this is Real Madrid's Galactico famous front five, basically. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and justifiably so, because uh, uh, Hento, or Gento, not sure which one to go with there, but I'm going to go with Hento. Uh, like, he really embodies that number 11. <laughs> I'll say that much, because it is bombing down that left-hand side, getting to the end line, and, like, head down putting in inch-perfect crosses. I don't see him look up a lot, but he seems to know exactly where to put that you ball to cause to. massive problems. If you know where De Stefano is, you don't need to look up. Yeah. Do you feel like when you watch this team, this is maybe a, a, a weird like thought process, but it's where I was. There's like a different type of fitness that all of these players are in contrast with today. And my assumption is that it's all rooted in like gymnastics, that that was a big part of fitness was doing gymnastics. They're all incredibly flexible, but very like skinny, except for Pushkas, obviously. <laughs> but with that, then you get a lot of these like swivel volleys and swivel crosses and like their hips are pointing one way, but their feet are pointing another. And I'm assuming that requires a decent amount of flexibility. So I'm putting that all on, on smoking and gymnastics. <laughs> smoking and gymnastics. Yeah. And some jogging mm-hmm. if you've got an important game Probably coming that too. up. Probably that too. If you've got an important game coming up. So we've talked about Hento. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously very important, right? Dangerous left winger. Um, I think we should talk about Alfredo Di Stefano, the centre forward. Yeah, we probably should. Because he is the key to this team, right? He is the absolute core of this team. He's not just the number nine and the goal scorer. I read stuff about him um, sort of leaving the centre forward position and coming back yeah. into midfield and dictating play. And I was sort of like, all right, you hear a lot about how influential players were. Let's go back and watch the footage. And guess what I saw, Taylor? Uh, a lot of him playing as a central midfielder? Yes. Di Stefano yep. would come all the way back. He would pick up the ball. He would point to other players where he wanted them to go. <laughs> he would really, really be directing traffic from central midfield. And he would just start dribbling or playing quick one-twos or really starting moves from central midfield. And then he'd end up in the box, often finishing the move. What an absolutely magnificent footballer. And, and and his, like, he is on the bald, like, Mount Rushmore, yes. for sure. It's Zidane and De Stefano. But, like, y- you see him you see him playing in some of those finals, and you're like, oh, so this was near the end of his career. And then it's like, nope, he had, like, another decade that he kept going. Yeah. But just how how much work he put in. Like, Th- he was, first, the, I assume he was that the thinly strung blonde arrow. When I heard yes, blonde he arrow, I expected a big, like, Jamie Lannister head of hair. But it's yeah. not, right? It's a few strands combed backwards. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, and I and I do assume like that he, like part of the the roaming was positional that it was what he was told to do, or maybe not what he was told. Oh, to do, I but think what it's why he's going to do. What the coach said it's why he decided yeah. to do. Yeah. But I almost from watching some of it, it feels like he just had so much energy that it's like like your dog just needs a walk. It has to get outside, <laughs> otherwise it's going to go nuts. Like Alfredo De Stefano seemed like that. I'm like, I just got to run around for a while. I need I need to to be over there, and I need to be over there. He just wanted to be on the move. He wanted to be around the ball. He wanted to be in on the action, and he was very frequently. That analogy works if your dog is definitely the alpha. Because Alfredo De Stefano, <laughs> yeah. I really think is the yeah. alpha of this team, just absolutely yeah. bossing the entire thing. One other note on mm-hmm. him. I kind of understand Real Madrid's obsession with Cristiano Ronaldo now. Because yeah. watching Alfredo De Stefano dribble, he's very upright, straight-backed. Mm-hmm. He's very muscular in that Ronaldo-y kind of way. And it's a lot of step-overs and back-heels and, you know, flair and tricks and misdirections, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's basically very Cristiano Ronaldo if Ronaldo had played central, like played central through the middle of the team his entire career. That's how I look at De Stefano. So it's a little bit like like Hento is Bale, De Stefano is Ronaldo, yeah. and then Pushkash is Benzema. Yeah, mate, that doesn't quite work. When they for were good, me. yeah, but no, uh, not quite. The, the, everything except the Pushkash. Benzema one needs some more pounds, and then maybe. Yeah, can we talk Pushkash a second? Because sure. I enjoyed watching some French Pushkash. I realize I talked oh, a yeah. lot about De Stefano, so I will throw this to you if you want to talk Pushkash. I mean, I've talked about him a little bit. Uh, I, I did go back and watch some of him uh, from this era, and then obviously some of him uh, playing for Hungary as well. The galloping major. Do you know why he is the galloping major? I don't. I absolutely don't. Was he in the Hungarian army, maybe? 
it's because the entire team, when uh, the communist regime came to be, uh, you had to do military service. So I think this was their form of military service, but all of the players who won the Olympics were granted the rank of major. Oh. Uh, so that's why. Um, but yes, he is, he is like, like you get how he got overweight, basically, because <laughs> he has that sort of barrel frame. But then he has the, again, the kind of ballet ability, the ballet footwork that you do not expect. And yeah. then by all accounts, he had an absolute cannon of a foot and could yes. hit any ball of this era from distance and cause problems, which is saying something given that that ball was slightly heavier than it is today. <laughs> so if you watch enough footage of Ferenc Puskas, mm-hmm. I, you, I think I'm saying this to listeners, you will become convinced that this is the guy you should look to for form when shooting. Because yes. I felt like every time yeah. I saw him strike a ball with that beautiful left foot, it's almost like he w- his left foot, after he followed through, would sort of hang in the air a little longer. And you can almost take this snapshot of, yeah, that's the perfect form for shooting. You could like, that could be the Bundesliga logo kind of thing. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like he, st- yeah. he strikes, he follows through, and then he hangs in the air. And it's this, if you're going to paint like a really um, dramatic portrait or a picture of man striking soccer ball that's the moment you would choose with push gas just as he's following through i mean it's all that uh ballet dancing and smoking <laughs> there you go uh if you look at later photos of ferenc push you see the kind of weight we're talking about but here yeah i think this would be a perfect uh logo for some sort of league maybe even for the ccc H? I think I did too many C's there. It, uh, trophy. The, but we'll see what happens. It's the caca. It's the caca. The caca. <laughs> so it's also, it's not just like savage power from distance, right? All these no. strikes from push gas, I see top left corner, bottom left corner, bottom right corner, top right corner. He is yeah. really rattling those corners, right? Top bins, as modern English people would say, is what yeah. Ferenc Puskas was all about. But then when he was... Especially in the... Oh, go ahead. When he was dribbling, when he would receive the ball in the box, he was so gentle and delicate. It was like nice, tiny little touches and misdirections where he could open up enough space for himself to then unleash this left-footed cannon. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the gentleness of the touch and the control combined with like the viciousness and violence of the shot because yeah. that, that ball hit the back of the net. It's like they told him the soccer ball is communism, and so he hit it as hard <laughs> as he could. <laughs> My final note on this front five goes back to Raymond Copa, um, who mm-hmm. I think usually played right wing for this Real Madrid team. And again, I mentioned earlier that they signed him from Ream after they played Ream in the 1956 European Cup final. He was a number nine. He was like the De Stefano of Ream. Mm-hmm. He was willing to go and play for this uh, Real Madrid team, this Bernabeu Galactico Real Madrid team, and play outside right or right wing. And I think that's one of the keys to this team is players like Copa would go and be willing to not be the star man. They would like cede to the alpha, De Stefano, and say, yeah, I'll play on the right wing. Playing right wing for this team is better than being centre forward for maybe the second best team. Yeah. I mean, you can't fault him. It, it, it tended to work out uh Pretty okay. Yeah, in terms, okay. in terms of trophies, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, did, did you notice anyone else apart from the front five? Uh, yeah, I liked uh, Jose Santa Maria, uh, yes. center back, uh, who who just like I he was he was a modern center back in that he was not a modern center back, but in that I would like especially in the 1960 final, which they win what seven three yeah, was it? Yeah, Frankfurt. End? Yes. Um, there was a couple near the end where I saw him in and around the penalty area. And I was like, oh, Jose's trying to get involved. <laughs> Jose wants his name on the score sheet. I see. But for the most part, he was just the one who, I think, stayed home, did his defensive job, was the sort of like the main organizer, the person that made it very difficult to go around. And would maybe put in a physical challenge or two if need be. I don't know if I'm being, um, I don't know what the word would be, like timist. But mm-hmm. I was expecting Santa Maria to be 
first to the ball, bang it clear, yeah. and just like let the mm-hmm. fancy players do the rest. But I saw a lot of composure from Santa Maria. I saw him first to the ball, take a couple of touches, you know, dribble and play a nice pass into midfield, right? So I thought of him as yeah. a much more... I saw a much more modern centre-back than I expected in Santa Maria. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it wasn't the, like, I'm just going to kick it as hard as I can to somebody yeah. up front and then let them be good. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it was not. Um, my, my, my final thing, unless you have uh, more to say about this Real Madrid team, because I want to talk a little bit about the managers for a moment. Okay, I just have one more player that stood out sure. to me. It was a guy who was often captain and often played as one of the, the two central midfielders, um, mm-hmm. Zaraga. And he was often captain, and he would be the guy that quite often would win the ball back in midfield and then give it short to one of the front five. I think, I think, I can't say this for sure because I haven't seen enough footage, he might be one of those guys that is a lot more important than we realise. Is this Zarazaga, or do I have it written down wrong? I, I, may, I may have it written down wrong. Either way, is he the number six yes, for them? Yes, number or six. He literally wore number six? I believe that's Jose Maria Zarazaga. Yes, that's, that's it then. Yeah, we're thinking of the same player. Did you see the same okay, thing? Okay, cool. Uh, no, I don't think okay, so. Okay, I just saw a lot of like real simple wins. Uh, maybe after a team has managed to clear, Zaraga would collect and Zaraga would give it back to one of the other guys. All right, okay. So so did you find yourself like enjoying watching this team? Because yes. I definitely found myself at times like they were fun to watch, but I was still sort of trying to figure it out like how they're playing and, and like are they comprehensively from top to bottom as good as maybe some of the other teams we're going to be talking about? What I found frustrating is they didn't do enough defending for me to get a good idea of their defending, right? Okay. And I think it's because they were such a um, like beloved team that any highlights mm-hmm. you see, everybody just wants to see these five attacking players go at the opposition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and any uh, full games that you can find, like say on footballia.net, the camera is so tightly focused that you can't get a sense of the, the full length of the field. So right, that, I, don't that think, makes sense. I don't think there's enough footage out there for us to get a really good sense of how this team defended. All right, all right. That, then, then I feel better with that. Uh, yeah, to your point, uh, it was uh, Bernabeu who said, the crowd wants to win first and then to play. That was definitely the uh, maybe the, the idea behind this team a little bit. But that is also where I think they could be slightly vulnerable when they match up against Arsenal. Uh, at Would it have been Highbury? It would have been Highbury at that point, yeah, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So we're going to Highbury for Arsenal in 2004. So uh, iPhone aside, uh, playing black and white aside, uh, the thing that I think could be a limitation is that though this team were as dominant as we've talked about, it's three managers, but kind of four, in that run uh, of five years. You have uh, Jose Villonga uh, wins two La Ligas, two Champions Leagues. Then Luis uh, Carnelia wins one, goes away for two months, comes back and wins another. Then Miguel Munoz wins uh, two Champions Leagues, that one, uh, the final one in 1960. But it still is like a different managers coming in and doing different things, but it feels very much like just put the good players on the field, and if you don't, then we'll fire you. And I do wonder if that limits them in terms of playing a more modern opponent who has uh, the ability to be flexible and change things up. Do you have that kind of commanding manager who can make stuff happen? So that's interesting, yeah. So this Real Madrid team is going to go into this game, um, and obviously we know that this is really hard, right, to compare two teams across history. But if they're going into this game, they're not going to be studying Bergkamp and thinking about what Patrick Vieira does and all that kind of stuff, they are probably going to be, all right, we're the best. Put us out there. We'll take mm-hmm. them. Put us out there in yeah. the three two five, and we will take them. So yeah. then what happens? Do they take them or not? Like, does Raymond Copa going up against Ashley Cole... I think that's a tough. That's really tough for Ashley Cole. Like Colo Torre being uh, dribbled at by Ferenc Puskas. I think that's a big ask for Colo Torre, who mm-hmm. is not like the world's greatest defender, right? I think this is where uh, one thing that I probably should have said when we were talking about Arsenal is that we we talked a decent amount about Lauren and 
uh, Ashley Cole getting forward and being involved in the attack. But there was also, importantly, times when they knew not to do that, that they knew that if we just keep forward at the back, uh, the opponent won't be able to hit us on the break. And I do wonder if, if you kept them back a little bit more and had your just kind of solid back four, you had uh, Gilberto Silva and you had Patrick Vieira there, do those six players sort of negate what Real Madrid are going to throw at you, albeit with Alfredo De Stefano and Ferenc Puskas and Hento and Copa? And, and I think it might, because I also think that, like, we go back to, like, the English game as an example, uh, the Netflix show, and it's like, wait, he's he's changing positions? That's not allowed. Passing the ball? That's not allowed. And I do wonder if there was a time when it was, like, Alfredo De Stefano leaving that number nine spot to drop in and play midfield. It was like, well, what do we do now? This is unheard of. How do you defend this? Whereas Arsenal would just be like, all right, we'll keep another person there. It's fine. The thing that convinces me about Arsenal being able to beat this Real Madrid team is the idea of the Vieira and Gilberto uh, mm-hmm. defensive midfield in front yep. of Campbell and Torre. And I think it would be re- it's really hard to get through that, right? And if you added a thing on top of, like, say De Stefano is going up and down, trying to sort of dominate the game, if a competitor like Patrick Vieira was told, your guy is De Stefano, mm-hmm. then suddenly the thing that everything went through for Real Madrid is, even if Vieira can't, negate it completely he's going to diminish De Stefano's interest to some extent right mm-hmm. yeah and, and I think conversely like I really enjoyed what I saw from Santa Maria but I wouldn't say that I'm very familiar with his defensive abilities overall and I can still say with some level of comfort that I feel like he's going to struggle against Thierry Henry maybe more so than uh, Patrick Vieira against Alfredo De Stefano which feels like blasphemy it feels like I'm going to get yelled at yeah. for that one but I'm okay with well, it because someone's always going to be unhappy at the end of these shows right I would mm-hmm. also submit that we've said we're not going to really um, focus heavily on like definitely the Arsenal no. players of the early 21st century are mm-hmm. much fitter than the Real Madrid players of the 50s and 60s just because human nutrition not just sports nutrition yeah. and sports science but human nutrition has advanced right um, yeah but Ferenc Puskas was still overweight even for yeah. his time you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. He was so good and he was playing for such a dominant team that he could get away with it. If you're playing against the Arsenal Invincibles, you don't get away with it. Yeah, I mean, it's why he doesn't start the 1959 final. Yes. Again. It's like his fitness was just not there. And uh, Cornelia, was just, or Cornelia was just like, nope, I'm not dealing with this. So I need a fit, a fit player. He's still magnificent. He still might find the space to hit a couple of shots from distance that might trouble Jens Lehmann. Mm-hmm. But I, I think his fitness might be a problem uh, in this game. There may be, we may have another Ferenc Puskas team from earlier when he was in better shape. That might be, mm-hmm. that might be a different story. Um, what about Hento running at Lauren? Any danger there? I mean, yes, I think so. But, uh, but I think a lot of Hento was get past and cross. And, and I kind of back Arsenal's defenders to deal with that. I, I love Sol Campbell. He's going to be commanding coming off his line. And then, yeah, Sol Campbell in his uh, like prime Sol Campbell days. Especially from my England fandom, I'm a soul man. You should feel bad about that. Do you I think? Don't at all. Uh, uh, do you feel like this is a team? I have the the Arsenal team as a like latter day sins team that it's almost easy to forget how good they were because of like some of the way it goes. Like Freddie Lundberg struggling in MLS, he goes to Japan, he ends up in India. There's like the Ashley Cole swap to Chelsea. There's LA Galaxy time. Sol Campbell's return in 2010. I would say that like Colatore like does not have the strongest end to his career, although is now as an assistant manager doing fine. Thierry Henry like sulking in New York. Like I think it's a lot of these players played for a very long time, and I think as a result saw that sort of career downturn a little bit more, and that maybe sticks around because. It's oh, more I recent. see. So you're not you're not using that as an argument that this team isn't as good no. as we think. It's that we forget what they were at their peak because they carried exactly. on for so long. 
Precisely. Yes. And so yeah. it's easy to be like, Ashley Cole, like he was maybe not even good to start for the Galaxy. It's like, yeah, when he was like 37. <laughs> like Ashley, <laughs> Ashley Cole in his prime was one of the best fullbacks in the league. Like, so, and for one of the best Premier League teams of all time, if not the best Premier League team of all time. So uh, that physically hurt me to say. Uh, so I just, I also think that like, though it's easy to sort of, like dismiss some of it when you go back and watch this team in their prime. I think they're really similar in a lot of ways to this Madrid team that I think it's going to be they're capable of scrapping and I think there's going to be a lot of physical play. I think there's also going to be some beautiful play and I feel like this one is like 3-2 or 4-2 or something like that in favor of Arsenal. I went into this not knowing. I am now mm. really convinced that Arsenal's defensive setup, Campbell heading away, Hento crosses, yep. Uh, Vieira and Gilberto sitting as like maybe a shield to try and like prevent the front five uh, do, doing too much damage. Um, Vieira, maybe if you have Vieira man mark someone like De Stefano, you make it really, mm. really hard for him. And I know maybe it's unfair to choose that, but that's what Vieira really could dominate opponents in that way, especially at this time, right? This was like someone Roy Keane yep. was like level with, and that's why they had mm-hmm. that big rivalry. That's how, that's what a dominant figure Patrick Vieira was in this era. And that's just talking about Arsenal defending. I think when you think about Arsenal on the counter-attack and all those weapons we talked about earlier, that's when I think it's basically just Real Madrid's shape is what puts them in trouble. Because <laughs> so they're in this yeah. 3-2-5, and then suddenly you've got Dennis Bergkamp launching an attack, and you've got Thierry Henry, Pires, Jungberg, maybe Vieira charging downfield and joining an attack. I think Arsenal's counter-attack is what takes the day here. Yeah, and I also think you've got an Arsene Wenger like at his the peak of his powers, so to say, that like he'll be able to adjust, he'll be able to kind of adapt, and at halftime he's going to make some changes. Whereas whatever manager Madrid are going to go with could be fired if he makes the wrong change. So I don't know if if they also have the manager, and which is insane to say because like like Miguel Munoz, I think who I mentioned, like goes on to win like nine La Liga titles. Like they've got a bunch of successful managers. It's just instability while they're having massive success. It's a strange thing with Madrid, but it does factor into my estimations a little bit. Only one of these teams can bring Ray Parler off the bench to change the game. <laughs> and that's that's the decider right there. <laughs> the anti-Galactico. It's what Ray Parler yeah. <laughs> So we had Barcelona beating Leicester 3-1. to I suggested maybe this could be 3-2 or 4-2 to Arsenal. What would you make of this one? Yeah, I think 4-2 to Arsenal. Because most Madrid games tended to be high scoring, right? That 1960 final mm-hmm. against Eintracht Frankfurt, they went yeah, a goal or three. two yeah. down. It finished 7-3. By the way, I would, I'll put a link in the show notes to... Am I editing this? I am, right? Um, I'll put a link mm-hmm. in the show notes to that. It's really worth watching some clips from that game because it was played in Scotland um, to a crowd that didn't support either team. But they just ended up applauding what they'd seen from Real Madrid, oh, yeah. right? And there's mm-hmm. all these stories about... Um, sorry, it's a bit of a sidetrack, but I think this is interesting. Uh, like Alex Ferguson talked about how yeah, we'd heard about these players, right? I'd heard tell of Alfredo Di Stefano and Ferenc Pushkas. I'd never seen them in the flesh. And then they come to Scotland and they play in the European Cup final. And I want to say Pushkas scores four and Di Stefano scores three. So it mm-hmm. was like these like larger-than-life figures that were legends because you just read about them in newspapers. You see them in the flesh and they're maybe even better than you imagine. Imagined. That's what it was like. If you see that crowd, they are absolutely wowed watching these players. Do you remember the beginning of 24-Hour Party People when it's like the Sex Pistols performing at like the Manchester yeah. Civic Association or whatever, but then there's all these like founding members of different bands that are important there? Yeah, inspired, like, by, I was, inspired by the performance. Yeah, I want this to be the same thing where it's like Ferguson is there in attendance and is like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Yes. <laughs> it's like this all-conquering manager and I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's probably true. That's the influence of and, this Real Madrid team. And that's why it's... And I'm kind Pep Guardiola's of, dad was there? <laughs> I'm kind, he would not have been. I assume he would be a Catalan uh, <laughs> independence kind of guy who would not be supporting Real Madrid. <laughs> that is probably true. He was there uh, for Frankfurt. He was there in a Frankfurt uh, kit, right? 
<laughs> um, so I'm really sad that this Real Madrid team is going out in this first round. And I kind of think this is maybe a tactical thing where the strength of this Arsenal team on the counter-attack mm-hmm. would just be too much for them. Yeah, this feels like one of those competitions when you get like when the U.S. women got France in the quarterfinals, or I think it was quarterfinals, and it was like, that should be the final, but here we are in the quarterfinals. Maybe this is like, this should have been the final, but they drew each other in round one. All right, so congratulations to Guardiola's Barcelona, 2009-2011, and Arsene Wenger's Arsenal Invincibles, still invincible, not beaten by Real Madrid, <laughs> 19, I keep calling them 55-60, to 60. it's really... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 55-56 season to the 59-60. Yeah. yeah, not beaten by the Real Madrid original Galacticos. Not beaten. <laughs> uh, we look forward to your letters. You can send those oh. to our mailing address, which is just the Total Soccer Show Tower, uh, America. Um, United States. <laughs> America. Write that on the envelope. It'll get there. It is worth saying, I know people are going to disagree with some of what we said, mm-hmm. right? The point here is just to be able to have a conversation about these teams somebody mm-hmm. has to win we can't just venerate both teams and then move on for this to be a tournament someone has to win please don't be mad at us if you're a Real Madrid yeah, fan if- you've got at least one other team in this tournament anyway yeah and if you are really mad at us consider what you're mad about and the context that you're mad about it within and then reevaluate is what I'm going to say <laughs> And then email albert at totalsoccershow.com. Um, all right. <laughs> Taylor, I enjoyed that. I look forward to uh, the next couple of games, which I think we're going to do later mm-hmm. in the week, right? What else is on tap for the Total Soccer Show this week? Ryan Bailey and I are going to be doing our, uh, our most disappointing players from the Premier League season so far. We'll see if that ends up being a permanent list uh, or if it uh, gets to evolve if the season resumes. Can I make a suggestion? Um, sure. Jesus Viejo for Wolves on loan from Real Madrid. I was very excited about that. Uh, or Patrick Cutrone as well? Well, I think we're going to get our money back on him, so it's okay. Uh, okay, all right, that's <laughs> fine. Um, uh, yeah, so we're going to be doing that, and then you and I are going to do some listener questions Wednesday evening. Yes. That'll probably be out Thursday, and then Friday we're going to be going back to do uh, two more games, at least, from this competition. So we'll carry on with this competition on Friday. Um, the book, yeah, sir. The book club, The Age of Football, mm-hmm. um, second chapter is in the works with George Croatia and I. We don't know when it's going to be recorded just yet. It may not be this week. If it's not this week, it'll be next week. Um, all that remains to say is Taylor Rockwell thank you for taking the time to take a trip through history with me today right back at you buddy listeners thank you for listening and we will talk to you again very soon <laughs>